0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 66, Storytelling. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about Stephen. He knew better than most. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I've been reading Animal Farm by George Orwell. Despite all our talk about being equal in Jesus, some of us do seem to be more equal than others. I've been hearing Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro talk about Bible stories. I wish they could take those stories to their logical conclusion. I've been playing Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. Stories are supposed to reveal important truths. Let's make sure they do. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Stephen told a story they killed him for it. I have to say, as a preacher of the gospel, I consider that to be something of an overreaction, one that I object to, one that thankfully is not necessarily within my purview of experience, although perhaps a little bit closer than I would have liked. We'll tell those stories another day, perhaps. But that's the way preaching is. And preachers who don't understand that, I think, need to regroup and go back to the beginning and look at some of the preachers in the Bible and how they were treated and how negatively their message went over, oftentimes, particularly when their message was a good message, a needful message, a pointed message. And that that was really what Stephen's issue was, if you want to call it an issue. It wasn't so much that he told a story or a series of stories. He made those stories relevant. He put a point on his point, as it were, and that point was accusatory. But that's the whole point of Bible stories. It's not just to tell us what happened. It's to tell us what it means to us, how we can become better people. We learn about God. We learn about God's people. We learn about values. And it begins at a very early age, whatever, two, three, four years old. We tell stories about Daniel in the lion's den, not just so they'll be distracted for a little bit, but so that we will set the tone for a future conversation that we're going to have about much deeper topics that are rooted in the telling of this story. The same thing goes for the Tower of Babel or Jonah and the Great Fish or whatever other story you might want to talk about. We tell these stories so that we can have a better understanding of who we are and where we came from and what God expects out of us. It's a practical consideration. It's not just killing time. It's not just putting a chuckle on our face. It is trying to move the needle toward God and away from selfishness and away from the devil and away from temptation and such things as that. This is what Jesus did in his dealings with spiritual things. And the same kind of barriers came up, which should not be surprising. This is the, the Stephen story. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, that uh, you're, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of the precepts of men, quoting from Isaiah, he's not saying there no, that Isaiah was foretelling a time when there were going to be people who rejected the message of God. He was talking to his contemporaries. You are rejecting the teachings of God. And Jesus says that same thing applies to you. You are living out your history. You are doing the same things for the same reasons. And he condemns them for it, particularly in, in Matthew chapter 23, in verses uh, 29 and following, it talks about how these ones in, in the first century were very much given over to whitewashing the tombs of the, uh, of the great ones and, and singing their praises and said, we would have done differently if we'd been back there. No, you wouldn't have. You would have done exactly the same because you are doing exactly the same, and not only to the prophets, but to the one of whom the prophets were teaching and speaking and to a certain degree, warning. This is the message of Stephen. God has made a habit over the centuries, he says, of sending you deliverers that you did not want. He starts with the the Joseph story. Joseph was sent by God to deliver his family. He told them about God's plan, and they tried to kill him. And then Moses, a few generations later, Moses is sent by God to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage, and they reject him. They don't want it. And in fact, they continue to reject him even after Mount Sinai, after the Red Sea, after the plagues. They continue to want to go their own way instead of God's way. And then, of course, Jesus comes along. And what do they do? And when I say they, I mean they, the people in the audience when Stephen is speaking. They killed the one of whom all these great worthies had been preaching all this time. Why? Because they were the same people as those ones who killed the great worthies in times past. They were pushing back, as he says there in verse number 51 of Acts chapter 7. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. See, they haven't learned from history. And we all talk about how important it is to learn from history. But if we manage somehow to open up a history book, it's not with regard to introspection. It's not trying to teach ourselves about who we are and where we should go. When we're looking at Bible history, we need to make sure that we do that, that we focus on our future, our present, by considering the past. That's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 10 verses or so. He lines out this pattern of rebellion, of refusing to listen, talking about the wilderness wanderings primarily there. And then he says these things were written as an example to us so that we would not go that way, so we would not suffer the way they suffered. And then he says in verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the message for us in consideration of Bible history. You think that you're serving God. You think that you're doing right. Well, it may be that a preacher comes along and tells you different and shows a pattern of behavior that matches very closely with a pattern of behavior of people in the past who were condemned for what they did. May God help us to find the strength to learn from that history, to be humble in the things that we are doing, the way that we view ourselves, and climb out of this mess that we are trying desperately to form for ourselves. Find a better way, a God-focused way. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Animal Farm by George Orwell is a very long fable, essentially, very much like Aesop's fables, trying to tell a relatively specific story, and, and Orwell was not vague about his feelings on the matter of Soviet expansionism and communism in general in the 1940s when he was writing his, his famous work. Because of circumstances in, in Europe, Hitler and all that, England had been more or less forced into an alliance with Russia, what used to be Russia, now known as the Soviet Union. And there was a lot of historic, uh, historical separation of philosophies between those two, England being capitalist, of course, and, and communism being rejection of capitalism, but you know, war makes for strange bedfellows, I suppose. At any rate, now there was this rise of support for Stalin and, and all things Soviet, etc., and they're not so bad, they're not so bad, and Orwell was very concerned about that, and so he wrote Animal Farm, which is basically a, a story about a farm, a farm of animals, as you, uh, as you might gather. If you haven't read the book before, it's fascinating, it won't take you very long, it's very easy to read. The the animals rise up in revolt and they kick away the the human oppressors and they're going to do their own thing. And the pigs are the smart ones in the farm. So naturally they kind of take the lead and they set the groundwork for what they're going to do and what the rules are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Because they feel like determining their own ends, setting their own course, not answering to humans is a much better way for them to go. And that's fine as far as that goes. But as time progresses, the pigs become more and more tyrannical, more and more willful and selfish and greedy and take advantage of the other animals who more or less just kind of go along with things because they don't know any better and and they're not really uh, empowered to think of themselves as being independent and that sort of thing. The pigs take advantage of their situation. And by the end of the book, there literally is no difference in the eyes of most of the animals between the pigs and the humans. The pigs have taken the place of the humans and they're just as autocratic and just as selfish and just as, as morally weak and reprehensible as humans ever had been. And with all due respect to Mr. Orwell, I'm not going to make a comment on communism here. What I do want to talk about a little bit is whether that same kind of dynamic, that same kind of paradigm might work with regard to the Lord's church. Because long before I was born, you know, 150 or so years ago, there were people largely in America who saw the abuses in man-made religions, uh, what we now call denominationalism. But but basically, it's pretty much every denomination out there was focused more on the teachings of a particular person or a particular group of people, tended to be very self-serving. Sometimes even the denominations would wear the names of certain ones or or have have people up on, literally on pedestals and, and calling them by special names and that sort of thing. And people said, that's not what the Bible teaches. We want to do something different. We want the community of of Jesus Christ to be a priesthood of the majority. We don't want a clergy lady system. We want everybody to be a child of God. We want everybody to be valued. We want everybody to govern his own spiritual affairs, not answer to other humans, answer to Jesus Christ alone. And so people started buying into this. They started accepting this philosophy. And as is always the case, certain ones rise to the top. Certain ones are more intelligent, more more. Eloquent, more educated, and they became more prominent in this fellowship. Before too long, they had become uh, preachers or professors or or school presidents, and, and on and on it goes. And before too long, that same sort of hierarchy, although maybe somewhat less official, had emerged among these people. The heroes that were lionized in the past and that were being criticized for separating themselves oftentimes had been at least in the minds of the people given way to others who were doing the same exact thing and I don't mean to be particularly critical of any person in church history that that may have played a prominent role uh, nationally or internationally with regard to such things I, I have a great deal of regard for the good work that that many men have done over the over the past we could talk about, J.W. McGarvey or David Libscomb or or Foy Wallace or Roy Cogdall and, and on into the modern day as well. I have my heroes. You probably have yours as well. And hopefully, at least, we understand that these are human beings that have their flaws, that have their shortcomings, that may very well have been wrong and may have been wrong in some remarkable way, some very dangerous way, and that ultimately we are responsible to, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I hope that we have not gotten to the point where we have so much respect for Bible professors, so much respect for colleges, so much respect for people who have written books, that we trust them for our salvation. But I have seen this my entire preaching career. People who saw something in print and recognized the name that had put it in print and just assumed it was right. And it may be right. But that doesn't mean it's not a dangerous precedent. We are responsible for our own salvation. And we need to not trust human beings to get us there. And that includes this human being, by the way. Just because somebody has a podcast and people listen to it every once in a while, that doesn't mean that I am smarter or more holy or more righteous than anybody else. Or you know, the same thing could be said for any other podcaster or writer or professor, etc. What we need to do is trust in Jesus for our salvation. And not to put too much confidence in human beings. Now, sometimes, for whatever reason, myself included, most of us need a guide like the Ethiopian did on the Gezer Road in Acts chapter 8, verse 31. How can I know what Isaiah means here in Isaiah 53 unless someone guide me? Well, we all get to that point from time to time. And I have a wall full of books behind me as I'm broadcasting right now. Written by people who I respect. People who have a lot to say on these matters. That's perfectly okay. Or seek out an elder or a preacher or a writer or whatever. Absolutely. But let's not put so much confidence in books or podcasts or men, ultimately, that we refuse to listen to what Jesus has said. That's the story Orwell was trying to say with regard to communism. That's the story I'm telling you with regard to the people of God. Anyway. Anyway that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro are two members of what is sometimes called the intellectual dark web. It's uh, an unofficial group of, of thinkers and philosophers and etc. etc. that, and I'm not going to get into the politics behind all of this, or even the philosophy behind all of this, but there are people who come from different walks of life, different perspectives, who share a general love of knowledge and a love of learning, especially. And this takes people to the Bible oftentimes, and, and I find their comments on biblical things fascinating. I'm not trying to advocate for either or both of these, these individuals, or any individual as far as that goes. But their take on Bible things I find very interesting. Jordan Peterson is what you might call a, a secular Christian. He, If you ask him if he's Christian, he'll say yes. He'll say so begrudgingly. I think that if you held him down on specific topics, he would deny inspiration of the scriptures and, and miraculous events that are in, uh, included in the Bible and, and things of that nature. But he believes in a God-centered world. He believes in a a world that is best formed around the principles and the values that are presented in Jesus Christ, and therefore calls himself a Christian. And he has lectures, a whole series of lectures, on Bible stories that I find fascinating and that I have, I'm going to shamelessly steal from, actually, in the not-too-distant future in some of my sermons, looking at Cain and Abel, looking at Abraham and Isaac, and, and other stories like this. that. Don't just tell a story, but tell a truth about what God is trying to communicate to his people and trying to build them up and teach them and guide them along life's pathway. From his perspective, it doesn't really matter whether those things actually happen. The important thing is the truth. I would differ with him on that. But he claims at least that these truths are critical in our in our understanding of, of spiritual things, in our spiritual growth, and our personal growth. Not so much by way of drawing closer to God or drawing closer to heaven, but rather making us better people in the short term. His philosophy tends to overlap with Jesus' philosophy a great deal, and so therefore, when Jesus says "turn the other cheek," he's good with that because he sees that as cutting off this cycle of revenge that ultimately culminates in world war. Basically, uh, you strike me; I choose not to strike you back, and that's over. the The war is ended, and it's ended quickly. That makes sense to him. It makes sense to me too, but. Uh, I don't believe that's the point of turn the other cheek personally, but he sees value in these teachings and therefore advocates for uh, reading these stories and and taking the lessons from it that God is trying to teach us. And I think that's good as far as that goes. I wish more people did that. Ben Shapiro is somewhat different. Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew, very religious as opposed to Mr. Peterson. He believes in the Bible stories, and I think if you tied him down, he would say that most, if not all, of the stories included in the Old Testament are real, that they actually did happen the way that they're being described as happening. And he looks at these stories in the same basic way, but adds an extra layer of of application onto this. It's not just that you're learning how to be a good person, as someone may define good person. He sees this as an opportunity, especially from a Jewish perspective, of training you how to be a child of God, going all the way to to circumcision. You are labeling your child, he says. He has a a son of his own. He labels his child as a child of God on the eighth day, saying for the rest of your life, this is who you are. This is how people will perceive you to be. It's not necessarily a comfortable kind of thing, but it does identify you with not just people in your life and your family, but with people throughout the centuries this is who you are, and you base it on these stories that you read about in the Bible. Now, I think that's a very important point, with, not just for Jews, but for Christians also, because we are spiritually circumcised. All of these promises that are given to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, these are realized in us. But there's more to it than that. It's not enough to just see yourself as a moral person or a child of God. I want to go to the next level. I want to look at these Bible stories as a tool to lead people to Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, that's what these stories are. That's the only thing they can be. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.18, where someone was going to come along and bruise the head of Satan and be bruised himself. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus story. When you look at Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain and offering him as a sacrifice, we see Jesus there. We see a father willing to give his son for the greater good because it would benefit in the long term. This is what Jesus is willing to do for us. And on and on we can go. These stories don't just tell us about ourselves or tell us about God. They tell us about our Savior. And one after another, we take these things in and we learn these things. Romans 15, verse 4, those things were written before a time were written for our learning. The more we understand these stories, the more we understand about Jesus. And the more we understand about Jesus, the more we draw closer to God and ultimately closer to heaven. I believe that's what these stories are really all about. Don't satisfy yourself with simply being entertained or being morally improved or even being spiritual. Don't stop short of being a Christian. Anyway that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But, If you stick around for a few more minutes i would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in satan's world and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process this is what i've been playing storytelling is a growing genre in board gaming these days not in the hammonds family though we tend to shy away in fact we don't tend to we shy away from these games it just doesn't seem to be our cup of tea we haven't really tried very many of them so it was a bit of a challenge to come up with a game that would fit inside this podcast. I wound up focusing on Deception Murder in Hong Kong, which is not really a storytelling game in the conventional sense of the word, but it does have a story that goes behind it. If you can lay your hands on, on Deception, it's a, it's a very entertaining game. The girls love it. It's, a, it's basically a whodunit kind of thing. There is a, an investigator, and he is trying to de- determine who did the murder. And everybody else at the table has two sets of cards. They have pieces of evidence or potential evidence that are laid out in front of them and certain murder weapons, basically, or potential murder weapons. And the one who is actually the killer, the one who actually did the deed, is going to point when everybody's eyes are closed, except for the investigator. He's going to point to one particular piece of evidence and one particular murder weapon. And that is going to be the... The impetus for this entire murder. And in theory, at least, the investigator is trying to figure out how this crime took place. And the, the format of the game is secondary to the story, which is part of the reason why I don't especially like a deception murder in Hong Kong. Don't tell Kylie and Taylor this. They, they love the game. But basically, the investigator knows all the answers, and he is trying to answer questions such as, what was the weather like? Or, What was the state of the body? And and they are very limited bits of information that he can give out. It's one of those games where it really doesn't get a whole lot of sense when you start breaking it down. But nevertheless, it's the way the game is structured. And it works pretty well. By giving these little bits of information, the people at the table try to focus on what bits of evidence and what murder weapon might be appropriate. Now, obviously, they're both held by the same murderer. And so there's accusations that are thrown around here and there. And I think this is the one. No, I think it was... And, and because of that, there's a lot of, of confusion and, and arguing and, and the kind of social interaction that, that lends itself to a, a good party atmosphere, basically. And in the end, the, uh, the murderer is revealed, and hopefully the, the people have figured out who it actually is, and they get it right, and they win the game, and otherwise the, uh, the, the murderer wins the game. But behind it all, at the end of the, the game, the investigator is supposed to tell a story that explains how this piece of evidence was relevant and how the murder weapon was used and basically tell the story of the murder, which is a part of the game that the Hammonds family basically skips when we do this. We don't especially care, and maybe by that I mean I don't care. Uh, The game is over. We already figured out who the killer was. We figured out what happened. The particulars of it seem to me to be beyond incidental to the game. It really doesn't matter. And because that don't matter... I tend to discount it. And and I think that's one of the reasons, maybe the reason, why this game has not really resonated with me so much. I want the story to matter. I want it to make a difference. If I'm going to hear a story or tell a story, and you can ask anybody, I'm a big storyteller, it needs to be relevant. It needs to be important. People need to care one way or the other. I don't care about the story in Deception Murder in Hong Kong. And, And I thought, as i was considering this maybe this is the reason why so many people reject the gospel because you know the stories you know daniel in the lions den and tower of babel and adam and eve and all the rest of that why does that have to do with anything why does that have to do with me why does it does that have to do with with my soul if i have a soul or my eternity if i have an eternity and and things of that nature that maybe we don't do a very good job of connecting the dots connecting the storytelling aspect of the Bible to the doctrinal aspect of the Bible. And if there's no connection there, then it really does come across as people who had ideas, people who had philosophies like people do, and then they came up with a bunch of stuff to support their philosophy. This is, in fact, exactly what Peter is accused of doing what he and the rest of the apostles were accused of doing, he makes note of it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. And he goes on to talk about some specific eyewitness testimony that he had with regard to the transfiguration. I was there. I saw it. And the the Bible account in the New Testament depends a lot on eyewitness testimony. Peter, or sorry, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 appeals to the testimony of more than 500 people who saw the risen Lord at a single time. This is not fakery, even though it was accused of being fakery from the very beginning. Matthew 28 tells us that the chief priests were saying they they just made the story up about the resurrection. They went and stole the body. That's, That's all there is to that. Hopefully, we are able to see past that and understand that there is actually a real narrative based on real events. But if we don't go to the point of of telling people about this, of connecting these stories to spiritual reality, then maybe that's a sign that we don't see that connection ourselves. Why is it important that Jesus fed 5,000 people at one time so that he could tell them about the bread of life? John 6 and verse 35 tells us. That's why we have this story for the spiritual reality. Jesus tells us to do this, to focus on the signs of the times. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4, uh, he criticizes the contemporaries. You don't understand what's going on. It's not just a matter of there's a lot of angelic appearances and there are a lot of demon possessions and people having their demons cast out. This is a sign of greater things. And if you don't take the opportunity of these events to focus in a spiritual direction, then all of it's gone to waste. What we need to do as the people of God is take these stories and help people understand about Jesus It's not just helping understand how many plagues there were or the difference between Genesis and Revelation. It's about Jesus. And the more we can tell that story in its context, the more relevance these events, some of them supernatural, some not, the more impact those events are going to have and the cycle is going to grow. We're going to become deeper and deeper, more and more committed towards spiritual things, toward the pursuit of spiritual goals. These stories can be an invaluable help if we put them in the right context, if they tell them in the right way and use them to tell people about Jesus. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.HalHammons.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammons, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.